Hello, everyone, and welcome to the June 12th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Skarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A petition for review of the WCAB decision in Robert Gravelin's claim against the City of Vista was filed by Mr. Gravelin in the Court of Appeal last month. The disputed trial was to resolve issues raised by applicants' contention that one cumulative trauma case is properly applied to both the admitted injury to his skin and to his injury to the heart, and the defendant's contention that there were separate dates of injury for the injury to the heart and for the injury to the skin, and that the anti-merger provisions, presumably in reference to the provisions of Labor Code Section 3208.2 applied. Reconsideration was granted on March 27, 2017, and the work comp judge's decision awarding benefits in one case with one date of injury was rescinded in the split panel decision of Gravelin versus the City of Vista. New findings were entered that applicants sustained two separate cumulative injuries, one to the heart and hypertension, and the other to his skin. The different dates of injury support separate awards of permanent disability for those separate conditions, which resulted in a lower dollar award of permanent disability for Mr. Gravelin. The June order dismissing his petition for review in the Court of Appeal seemed like the end of the road for his appeal. But... The Labor Code provides that the first step in the appeal process is to file a petition for reconsideration when a litigant becomes an aggrieved party for the first time. In this case, Mr. Gravelin was not an aggrieved party when the work comp judge ruled in his favor and did not become aggrieved until March when the split WCAB panel reversed the decision of the judge, which was previously in his favor. The correct appeal procedure on that day would have been for Mr. Gravelin to file his own petition for reconsideration since he was then an aggrieved party for the first time. Instead, he filed a petition for review with the Court of Appeal. In response to his pending case in the Court of Appeal, the WCAB issued an order granting reconsideration on the board's own motion in order to further study the legal and factual issues he raised in the Court of Appeal. The WCAB notified the Court of Appeal of its order and requested that the pending petition be dismissed. So, Mr. Gravelin's case is now back at the WCAB level for further review on reconsideration. It will likely remain in this process for the next several months. Following the next decision of the WCAB, the aggrieved party, whoever it might be that at that point, will likely proceed back to the Court of Appeal asking it to hear the case. It can be assumed that a final determination of the apportionment issue will not be resolved until 2018 or perhaps even later. The California Department of Insurance has reached a settlement agreement with Berkshire Hathaway subsidiaries in the Shasta Linen case, which found the carrier's policies to be in violation of CDI regulations. The settlement includes a dismissal of the petition filed by the insurers appealing the decision so that the commissioner's administration decision in the Shasta Linen case will continue to stand as a precedent. 
The company will, however, continue to sell a revised version of its controversial workers' comp insurance policies to California employers. The revised version will contain disclosures about the financial risks of the company's reinsurance participation agreements, also known as RPAs. Workers' compensation insurance was partially deregulated by the legislature in the 1990s, and as a result, the insurance commissioner has only limited authority over rates and product features. The commissioner's regulatory authority over workers' compensation rates is limited. The rates must be sufficient to make sure the companies remain solvent, the rates cannot tend to create a monopoly in the market, and they cannot be unfairly discriminatory. Nonetheless, workers' compensation insurers are required to file their policy forms with the Department of Insurance for review. However, the commissioner has very limited authority over the product features. In May 2016, in response to a complaint by Shasta Linen, the commissioner determined that the California Insurance Company and Applied Underwriters, both subsidiaries of Berkshire Hathaway, were selling a workers' compensation product with illegal side agreements that modified the obligations of the parties under the approved policy. Such agreements, known as reinsurance participation agreements, require Department of Review and approval. But the Berkshire companies use the agreements without first obtaining the department's approval. The side agreements did not disclose basic premium information, levied hefty penalties for policy cancellation, failed to disclose required binding arbitration outside the U.S., and obfuscated the methodology for calculating premiums, deposits, or other payments that would be due. The department concluded that Applied Underwriters was trying to avoid regulatory oversight. The settlement effectively constitutes an acknowledgement that rates and supplementary rate information must be filed with the department consistent with long-standing insurance law. The settlement includes new disclosures that will provide policyholders with key details regarding the product. However, the California Department of Insurance claims that even the revised products are not appropriate for businesses unable to adequately evaluate the pricing, obligations, and risks of such a complex product. The department advises any employer considering such a complex product to consult an expert with legal and actuarial expertise in workers' compensation products. And now our crime report. The Orange County District Attorney's Office filed felony fraud charges against 10 attorneys and 6 others in what prosecutors say is a massive workers' compensation referral scheme with more than 33,000 patients and an estimated $300 million plus in insurance payouts. The attorneys charged were 56-year-old John Woods of Cyprus, 49-year-old Payman Zagari of Sherman Oaks, 49-year-old John Jansen of Santa Ana, 39-year-old Fari Rizai of Irvine, 49-year-old Lionel Eduardo Guron of Pomona, 73-year-old Dennis Ralph Fusi of Lakewood, 39-year-old Jorge Humberto Reyes of Los Angeles, 43-year-old Ronnie M. Barsom of Los Angeles, 
67-year-old Robert Irving Slater of Encino and 52-year-old Robin Jacobs of Sherman Oaks. The alleged cappers charged on the case are 31-year-old Boris Mikhailovich Didimov of San Diego and 42-year-old Soradia Veronica Castro of Imperial Beach, 31-year-old Tanya Arguello Placentia of Tustin, and 30-year-old Dolce Gallegos of San Ysidro. The district attorney said the charges were the start of an investigation by his office and the California Department of Insurance, which scrutinizes the role medical providers played in an alleged fraud ring that targeted mostly Spanish-speaking communities. Prosecutors allege that at the center of the ring were businesses run by 35-year-old Carlos Aguello III of Tustin and 50-year-old Edgar Gonzalez of Anaheim. In 2005, Argello formed an advertising company, Central Legal Internacional, which prosecutors accused of setting up illegal contracts with 20 to 30 attorneys who focused on workers' compensation and personal injury. The attorneys allegedly agreed to contract with companies owned by Arguello and Gonzalez in return for employees, known as cappers, delivering the attorneys a minimum number of clients per month. Attorneys are allowed to advertise, but the use of cappers to directly recruit for lawyers or medical providers is against the law. Prosecutors allege that the cappers distributed a variety of flyers and business cards in predominantly Hispanic neighborhoods and at swap meets offering free consultations for those who believed they had suffered workplace injuries. Those who called the listed toll-free numbers reached a call center in El Salvador. Prosecutors allege that within 48 hours, cappers sent recruiters out to the prospective patients' homes to have them sign legal papers without any contact or input from actual attorneys. Prosecutors allege that the attorneys paid the cappers monthly fees for the recruitment efforts, while the attorneys received a percentage of the settlements from the insurance companies. No medical providers have yet to be charged, but Investigators are looking into the possibility that some may have paid for patients recruited by the cappers. The 16 who are charged face a variety of felonies, including conspiring to refer clients for compensation, referring patients with reckless disregard for the commission of fraud and insurance fraud. A Murrieta woman is accused in an insurance fraud case that allegedly netted her more than $230,000. 34-year-old Brooke Elizabeth Best Freeman operated Best New Life Recovery, a licensed alcohol and drug treatment program in the Murrieta and Temecula areas. The charges against Best Freeman include four felony counts of insurance fraud and one felony count of solicitation or referral for purposes of insurance fraud, which is sometimes known as capping. She is also facing a sentence enhancement white-collar crime allegation. Her co-defendant, 49-year-old Robert Kramer of Lake Elsinore, is charged with one count of referral of a client for purposes of insurance fraud and is the alleged capper in the case. He remains at large. 
according to prosecutors Bess Freeman, came under investigation last September after the district attorney's office was contacted by fraud investigators from HealthNet Incorporated, who had flagged multiple billings from the defendant's businesses. Prosecutors allege that Best Freeman submitted claims to HealthNet and Cigna for treatments that were never provided to patients. The defendant also allegedly misclassified other services, forging or otherwise altering documents to commit acts of fraud. Kramer, the alleged capper, was tasked with finding prospects willing to go along with the conspiracy. According to the prosecution, he was promised $2,000 for his part. HealthNet allegedly lost nearly $200,000 paying the alleged bogus claims, while Cigna suffered a $36,000 loss. The DIR and its DWC have suspended Pasadena psychiatrist Jason Hoi Tech Yang from participating in California's workers' compensation system pursuant to newly enacted AB 1244. Dr. Yang was convicted in Riverside County Superior Court for his involvement in an insurance fraud conspiracy that referred patients for unnecessary care to justify workers' compensation billing. He was implicated in a second round of charges that expanded a Riverside County case against Payman Hedieri, a chiropractor accused of masterminding a legal and medical scheme to maximize profits by recruiting injured workers and giving them a one-size-fits-all battery of medical treatments. Prosecutors claimed that Hedieri ran an operation that paid people referred to as cappers $100 per patient to recruit injured workers who were provided the same medical care, regardless of their injuries. Hedieri and three associates were initially charged in July 2014. Later charges were filed against an additional six people, including three physicians. The 26-page grand jury indictment accused Yang of referring patients for unnecessary care to justify billing for medical legal reports costing about $1,000 each. Several carriers were specifically named as victims. Dr. Yang is a 1995 graduate of the University of Southern California Keck School of Medicine. He was licensed in California in 1998, and his license is still active, with no records of disciplinary action. The DWC issued a notice of suspension, which Yang appealed. The appeal was heard last April by hearing officer William Gunn, who issued a recommendation, determination, and order on May 25. The recommended decision was adopted by the DWC Acting Administrative Director George Parasato, and the suspension confirmed on June 1. Dr. Yang has over two thousand active workers' compensation liens with an estimated total claim value of more than $13.7 million. Nationally, workers' comp costs are lower than they were 10 years ago, but fraud remains a big problem. And according to the report in the Business Insurance, Many of the prosecutions were in Southern California, including a $580 million fraud involving kickbacks paid to chiropractors and doctors connected with the Pacific Hospital of Long Beach. Bill Zachary, the San Francisco-based senior fellow at the Sedgwick Institute, a research arm of Sedgwick Claims Management Services, says 
That case was a turning point on showing how we can stop pervasive medical provider fraud in California. The current crackdown on workers' comp fraud in the state started with Senate Bill 863, a workers' compensation reform enacted back in 2012. The measure provided a framework for developing an anti-fraud strategy by creating the independent medical review and independent bill review process. An investigative series in early 2016 claimed that certain physicians who were banned from treating within the Medicare and Medicaid system were simply moving their practices, including some of their fraudulent practices, into the work comp system. As a result, in 2016, two measures targeting fraud were passed, Assembly Bill 1244 and Senate Bill 1160. And more legislative action to stifle fraud in this state is expected. In March, State Assemblyman Tom Daly requested an audit for possible fraud in the state's work comp system. Results of the audit are expected this next October. And at the beginning of the year, the California Department of Industrial Relations made workers' comp fraud a top priority. And combating health care fraud will continue to be a priority for Jeff Sessions-led Department of Justice. In a May 18 speech at the ABA's Institute on Healthcare Fraud, the Department of Justice Criminal, Criminal Division's Acting Assistant Attorney General Kenneth Blanco said that Attorney General Jeff Sessions feels very strongly that health care fraud is a priority for the department. Blanco called healthcare fraud despicable and said the investigation and prosecution of healthcare fraud will continue. The department will be vigorous in its pursuit of those who violate the law in this area. Blanco's speech appeared to be designed to address concerns that changes in emphasis in the Department of Justice Criminal Division towards immigration and violent crime would come at the expense of healthcare fraud investigations. Blanco cited three tools that the Justice Department has used for the past several years when discussing the department's full court press to prosecute corporations and individuals who orchestrate and benefit from fraudulent health care schemes. First, the recent work of the Healthcare Fraud Unit, a specialized unit within the Criminal Division's fraud section. Second, the importance of cooperation between the Medicare Fraud Strike Force, U.S. Attorney's Offices, and state and federal investigative agencies. And third, the commitment to use uh, in-house real-time data analytics to review CMS data and detect fraudulent billing and emerging fraudulent schemes. To illustrate his point, Blanco highlighted recent enforcement actions by the DOJ's healthcare fraud unit against a number of companies and individuals. And in medical news, John Carlisle, a consultant anesthetist at the Torbay Hospital in the UK used statistical tools to conduct a review of thousands of papers published in leading medical journals. While a vast majority of the clinical trials he reviewed were accurate, 90 of the over 5,000 published trials had underlying patterns that were unlikely to appear by chance in a credible data set. Some of these errors may be the result of misinterpretation, statistical error, 
or plain, simple mistakes. But Carlyle also noted that it's likely that some of the research in question may have been deliberately falsified. He published his result in the June issue of the medical journal Anesthesia. The tool works by comparing the baseline data, such as the height, sex, weight, and blood pressure of trial participants, to known distributions of these variables in a random sample of populations. If the baseline data differ significantly from expectation, this could be a sign of errors or data tampering on the part of the researcher. If data sets have been fabricated, they are unlikely to have the right pattern of random variation. The new Carlisle screening tool has been developed in the UK and is now clear that it should be used by medical publications around the world. The detection of such anomalies in the case of Japanese scientist Yoshika Fuji triggered an investigation a few years ago that concluded that more than 100 of his papers had been entirely fabricated. And Fuji now has made 183 retractions of his voluminous research. The method has also been used by others to identify issues in more than 30 papers by bone researcher Yashiro Sato. The recent June study identified nine trials that had skewed baseline statistics, 43 of which with meth, um, measurements that had about a one and a quadrillion probability of occurring by chance. The published review includes a full list of the trials in question, allowing Carlyle's methods to be checked out, but also potentially exposing the authors to criticism. Relevant journal editors were informed last month, and the editors of the six anesthesiology journals named in the study said they plan to approach the authors of the trials in question and raise the prospect of triggering in-depth investigations in cases that could not be explained. The flagged studies came from eight journals, including the New England Journal of Medicine, Anesthesia, and the Journal of the American Medical Association. Over the past decade, the U.S. has undergone an opioid epidemic. Prescriptions for opioid painkillers like oxycodone, hydrocodone, fentanyl, and morphine have skyrocketed, and the trend has been decades in the making. Increases in painkiller prescriptions are linked to a big push in the early 1990s when doctors were encouraged to treat pain more aggressively. Although the increased focus on pain treatment resulted in increases in opioid prescriptions initially, for years now, pain specialists have advocated using alternative treatments to alleviate chronic pain. But there's one problem. Health insurance companies and workers' compensation treatment guidelines are increasingly cutting reimbursements for these alternative treatments or not covering them at all. Steroid injections, joint injections, fluid injections, physical therapy, nerve blocks, and radiofrequency are just a few of the treatments advocated by pain specialists in place of opioids. Such treatments are frequently called interventional pain treatments. Thus, on careful reflection, one might ask the question, have we backed ourselves into this corner? 
The policies of insurance companies have forced doctors to increasingly offer pain patients a difficult choice. Pay for expensive alternative treatments out of pocket, use opioids and possibly suffer a myriad of side effects, and risk opioid addiction, or choose to do nothing and live with debilitating pain. The coverage issue hasn't gone unnoticed at the national level. In the January 2015 issue of Pain Physician, the official publication of the American Society of Interventional Pain Physicians, a cadre of pain specialists lamented the draconian cuts to numerous interventional pain treatments. The article referred to reimbursement cuts ranging from 19 to 56 percent for various epidural injections by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. While some evidence suggests that the shots can ease low back pain caused by nerve problems in the short term, they are not covered under some treatment guidelines because they are not going to provide long-term benefits. Thus, treatment guidelines such as the ACOM guideline concluded that the treatment had no impact on functional impairment, the need for surgery, or pain relief beyond three months. But applying the same logic to prescribing opiates for pain would rule them out also. They do not provide pain relief for more than a few hours. Yet somehow, opiates are authorized as a treatment option for decades, and epidural injections that last just three months are not. This approach seems to have backed the industry into the corner of epidemic addiction problems and increasing annual death rates. Maybe it's time to rethink the cost versus benefits of pain treatment alternatives. And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Floyd, Scarn and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.